You're listening to the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast coming to you from the heart of Honolulu. Hui Kala is a committed family of faith that loves Jesus and loves one another. Grab your Bible and prepare for preaching from the Word of God from Pastor Anthony King. Uh, we're continuing our study through the book of Ephesians entitled Alive Together. We're basically just going verse by verse through the book of Ephesians. And we find ourselves today in Ephesians chapter number four is where we'll be at. If you missed any of the messages so far, you can always get caught up on our website at huicala.org or subscribe to our podcast. Uh, we, this is message number 26 in this series. And so we're, just, again, just been going verse by verse through the book of Ephesians. If you want to know what I'm going to preach next Sunday, just keep reading through chapter number four. Uh, and I'll give you a heads up there. If you've never read through the whole book of Ephesians together, I'd highly encourage you to do that. You could do it in one sitting, uh, I don't know, maybe 30 minutes or so if you set aside that. If you're a slow reader like me, uh, you get through the book of Ephesians uh, in probably half an hour or so. So much good material there. Uh, That's why we're going through it together as a church family uh, this year. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to start in verse number 1 this morning. We entitled today's message, The Unity of Jesus' Church. Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 1, I, therefore, prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. I grew up in a really small town in western Kentucky of about 4,000 people, and uh, I knew that I didn't want to live and die in a small town. I knew that there was something else out there in the world that I wanted to explore, and I had the opportunity to join the United States Navy out of, uh, out of high school, and I shipped off for boot camp in September of 1995, uh, and so uh, I started my, my Navy career then. only did six years, and six years was plenty for me, uh, but I found in, uh, in, in the process of going to boot camp in Great Lakes, Illinois, I went in the, the winter time, which is the worst time in the world to go uh, up to the Great Lakes uh, because it snows all the time. And they have this thing that they make, make it sound really fun. They call it snow watch. Like you're like sitting up in a tower with a pair of binoculars, like looking for the snow to come. No, no, no. Snow watches, you have a shovel and it's your job to shovel snow. Uh, that's no fun for nobody whatsoever. But as I, uh, again, you know, I, nobody in my family had ever been in the military outside of my grandfather who was in World War II, uh, and he never actually got out of uh, California. He was a driver in San Francisco, and so it was kind of different for me to, to step into military life because nobody in my family had ever had any type of experience like that. I know many people come from military families, and their uh, parents that did it, and their grandparents, and everybody before them is kind of their turn. That wasn't me. I just did it because it was the quickest way out of my hometown. But as I spent the eight weeks there in boot camp, I began to learn that I was a part of something much bigger than myself. I was a part of a, a, a strong tradition and heritage of people who had gone on before that called themselves sailors. Uh, I, I learned that this is the world's finest navy, and we began to have a vocabulary that we used that we'd never used before. We used terms like P-ways for hallways. We used things like bright works for things that we had to, to shine that were uh, shiny. We used uh, words for each other like shipmate that I'd never used before in my entire life and have never used since. Uh, but we, I was adopted into something that was different. I never had before, but we were all 
on the same page together. Uh, we were required in boot camp to read the Blue Jackets manual, which is what it means to be a United States Navy sailor. And we all got on the same page. We memorized the same uh, creeds and all the things that, that we went into being a United States Navy sailor. We learned about the core values of the Navy, honor, courage, and commitment. And come uh, the day of uh, uh, graduation from boot camp, we all stood in our, our formation as a division there, and we're officially granted the, whatever they call it on graduation day, you're the real deal here. And then we shipped off to, uh, to schooling from there. And we found a group of people who are in a different part of the United States that used the same uh, vocabulary. They had the same structure. They were part of the same uh, group of people. They had a shared experience together. And I realized that these people are all over the world now. And fast forward, uh, I don't know, 20 years or so later, I get the opportunity to meet uh, military folks here as a pastor, and we begin to have that shared vocabulary. We begin to talk about, did you ever wear this uniform, or did you ever do that? Did you ever go here? Did you know somebody who did this? And we begin to have a, a shared uh, experience that we have together. The body of Christ is the exact same way, and you and I, most of us probably didn't grow up with this being our second nature. Uh, we were actually born enemies of God. We were born outside of the family of God. And this isn't natural to a lot of us. If you're here today at church and you go, uh, this isn't really how I, was, how I grew up. This is not how I was raised. Uh, join the club. A lot of us weren't either. Uh, for me, I grew up in church my whole life, but I never grew up in a church like this my whole life. A little bit different for sure. Shared vocabulary, shared experiences, but as it comes back to it, as Paul talks about the church here, he talks us about us together being one body together, that we have a shared experience, we have a shared vocabulary, we have a shared common mission, we have the same goals that we have set for our life, and this is what provides unity. Uh, one of the things that I love about who we call a Baptist church is everybody here is so diverse. Uh, if everybody was uh, Western Kentucky white folks like me, this would be the most boring church on planet Earth, right? Now, we have people from every corner of the globe in this church. Uh, we have people that with so many different experiences when it comes to uh, past religions that they were a part of or uh, belief systems that they used to adhere to. Uh, we have people that on every end of the socioeconomic spectrum. We have people in different demographics. We have people with kids, uh, lots of kids. We have kids, people with no kids. Uh, in every area uh, that we are completely and totally can imagine, we're totally different. All of us are different. We're very diverse. But there's one thing that unifies all of us. There's one reason that we're all here today. There's one thing that draws all of us from every different background that you can imagine together as one, and his name is Jesus. Jesus unites us all. And as Paul uh, kicks off uh, Ephesians chapter four here, he talks about the unity inside the local church. When we are part of a team, every team has standards and rules and guidelines that we have to follow to be a part of the team. Uh, every team has uh, requirements that are there. Uh, if I, when I played basketball in high school, one of the requirements is that you went to practice every single day. If I skipped practice, I got kicked off the team. Simple as that. If I performed poorly at practice, I didn't get a lot of minutes to play, which was often the case. Uh, but uh, there's always any part of a group that you're a part of, there's always a certain ethos that you subscribe to. There's always a certain uh, guiding principles that you have. And Paul says when it comes to the church and when it comes to being a part of the church, there's the same guiding theme that we have for the entire church, something that keeps us unified, something that keeps us all together, something that keeps us on the same page. Now, let me tell you this. Who we call a Baptist church is not the perfect church because there is no perfect church because every church is made up of imperfect people. 
And so if you're coming here thinking, well, the, uh, there's some things that I saw this morning that show me that this is not the perfect church, I would say, hey, I guarantee you my list is a lot longer than yours, okay? Uh, if you made a list of things you didn't like about our church because it's not perfect, I got a much longer list than you do. So, uh, but the idea is not that we'd be a part of a perfect church, but that we'd be a part of a, a group of people that are imperfect that are looking towards a perfect person that we're striving towards, and that perfect person being Jesus Christ. Our church is not perfect, far from it. You'll never find the perfect church. But here's one of the things that we can do. We can be a unified church. Uh, for, for five years, we've had a beautiful, beautiful unity inside of our church. Uh, no schism, no drama, no problems that I know of. I'm an anti-drama pastor. I hate drama, man. Uh, have you ever been around people before who are just addicted to drama? Like there's nothing going on. They'll just make up a problem out of nowhere. I, I, this is the anti-church of that, okay? We can't have that. We've had people before who have come and said, well, you know, so-and-so looked at me the wrong way. And it's like, no, not here. You're not gonna do that here, okay? You can find a church up the street if you want to take your drama there, but you're not going to bring it here for sure. Drama is not welcome here. And I'm talking about stirring up strife for the sake of stirring up strife. Uh, I, I tell our church family on several occasions, if there's a problem in this church, just, just know this, I'm going to take care of it. If I hear that somebody doesn't like somebody, the, the three of us are going to sit down and we're going to hash it out because that's the way that Jesus' church works. We're unified together. One of the great theologians of our day said it this way, if you got a problem, yo, I'll solve it. <laughs> I think that was Charles Spurgeon or somebody like that. Uh, <laughs> if you know the, the, the author, shame on you. Uh, but here's the idea. We can't have, and again, this is an anti-click church too. If there's cliques in this church, I want to know about it so that I can bust them up because I, I don't like that. Uh, there, have you ever been to churches before where you feel like, I just don't fit here. I've tried to fit in. Nobody will let me fit in. I've tried to get into a group and nobody will let me get in the group. It's like the circle is, uh, is closed and there's nobody else coming in uh, from that. This is the anti-church of that. Everyone is welcome here. Everyone belongs here. And if you have a problem breaking into the church family, please let me know. I promise you this. I'll make a way for you to get in. I guarantee you that. Because the church requires unity. It requires us to be a tight-knit group of folks. Because here's the thing, people. Uh, here's the problem that we have. The church is supposed to be unified, tight-knit, getting it done, moving forward, taking action. And the world is against us. They hate our guts. The devil hates our guts. He's going to do everything he can to bust us up to keep us from being effective. So we're at war, and we cannot be at war with the devil, and we cannot be at war with the way that this world does things, and at the same time be at war with each other. It just doesn't work that way. So we got to cut the drama, get back on the same page, and move forward. And again, I don't know of any drama in our church at all. If I do, I promise you this, it would already be handled, settled, over, and done with. But as we look at this passage, Paul talks about unity, and unity is a big deal to Jesus when it comes to his church. First of all, we see in this passage that unity is fueled by love and humility. Particularly verse number two, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love. You see, the idea is that we would walk in humility. Humility is a very difficult thing for most people. We're born proud people. That's who we are. But the problem with pride is that pride brings division. The Bible says this. If you have problems in your marriage, there's one source of the problems in your marriage. And you know what it is? It's pride. Uh, the Bible tells us in, in Proverbs 13, verse number 10, only by pride cometh contention, where the well-advised is wisdom. That if there's drama in your marriage, it's pride. If there's drama in a dating relationship, pride. 
If there's drama in a interpersonal relationship, pride. There's drama in uh, your workplace. The root of this eventually gets traced back to pride. Now, is it other things too? For sure. But the root of it is pride. I deserve something because of who I am. I deserve X, Y, or Z. And, and there's no place for pride in Jesus's church. Uh, pride is actually listed in the book of Proverbs as one of the things that the Lord hates. God hates pride, and pride is so destructive. Pride is at the root of every marriage that falls apart. Just know that. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve to be treated this way. There's better things out there for me. I'm gonna live my life in a way that makes me happy every single time. Every child that rebels against their parents, the root of that is pride. I know what's best for me. I don't need anybody to tell me otherwise. I'm gonna go do my own thing. Leave me alone. Pride is the root of that rebellious spirit. And so when it comes to Jesus' church, there's no room for pride anywhere. We must walk in humility. Uh, hey, I'll be the first to tell you, I'm no better than anybody else in this room here. Just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean that I, uh, I'm sinless or perfect in any way. I'm not. Uh, just ask my wife. She's got a list that she keeps herself. All of us have sinned. Every single one of us has sinned against God. We have no place to put ourselves above anyone else. You ever been to a church before where people kind of looked down their nose at you, maybe because of what you were wearing or who, the people that you were with or uh, the way that you had something going on? I don't know what it is, but you felt awkward there. That's the opposite of what Jesus expects for his church because that's pride. Pride says, oh, look at you. Who do you think you are? Maybe one day you'll get on my level and get to where I'm at. That's the opposite of the heart of Jesus Christ. And pride is one of the things that the Lord hates. The first sin that we find in the entire Bible, the root of it was pride. Even when we take the first sin in all of creation, which would have been uh, the sin in, uh, in heaven when Satan rebelled against God, what was the, the root of that sin? Pride. Satan says, my, my throne will be higher than God's throne. And Satan and all of his angels were cast out of heaven to the earth. You take the Garden of Eden, they weren't supposed to touch this fruit. They weren't supposed to eat of the fruit, rather, because God says, you eat of this fruit, you're gonna die. And the devil said, will you really die? I don't know, let's see. Why would God hold this back from us if it's a good thing? And they said, I deserve this. Adam stood by while his wife took the fruit, she ate of it, she handed it to him, he ate of it because he deserved it. Pride was the root of every problem that we have. That's why it's so, so dangerous. The only protection that we have against the sin of pride is humility. And understand that humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. I'll say that again. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Like, I'm such an idiot. I'm such a loser. Uh, nobody, nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. I guess I'll go eat some worms. Uh, that's not humility. Having a negative self-image is not humility. Humility is, I'm not really concerned about me. I want to take care of others. Humility is putting other people above myself. Humility is taking care of everyone else's needs and then my needs will be taken care of last. That's what humility looks like. And so humility is the antidote against pride. Secondly, we see that selfishness so strife. Church is an interesting thing because uh, when people move to a new uh, area or something like that, they go on a, a, 
a quest which is sometimes deemed as church shopping. Uh, if you've ever been part of church shopping before, it is a highly unpleasant experience uh, where you travel from church to church to church to try to find one that uh, preaches the Bible, loves people, and does what Jesus tells us to do. And you would think, that's pretty easy to do, right? Just find a church that loves people, loves Jesus, and does what the Bible tells us to do, right? Those should be on every corner in America, right? Unfortunately, for whatever reason, they're not. And so people begin this process of trying out churches. And uh, I remember when uh, our family moved to Hawaii, back in uh, 1999, uh, we had went to probably, I would say, at least a dozen to two dozen different churches uh, trying to find the one that was the right fit for us. And again, we didn't know a lot about the Bible. We didn't really even know what we were looking for. We just knew that these people don't like us. Uh, we went to a church where the pastor cursed from the pulpit. And I thought to myself, you've got to be, and we got, up, got our stuff and left. Uh, we went to churches before where no one spoke to us whatsoever. No one spoke to us. And we could have just might as well have been invisible there. It wasn't a big church. There was like 20 people there. And you would think that when three people show up and there's only 20, I mean, we increased the size of the church by like 10% just by showing up, right? You think that would be a good thing. But it was like we did not exist. I thought, wow, this is a bummer. And sometimes people will come to who we call, and let me just say this, who we call a Baptist church is not for every person. And if this church is not for you, I would challenge you with this. Find the church that God's called you to, jump in both feet, get locked and loaded, and serve Jesus there. That's okay with me if you want to do that. But sometimes people will come and they'll say, well, you know, I, I like the church, but, you know, I, I didn't like this. I didn't like that. There wasn't enough parking. There wasn't enough, uh, you know, my, my kids got a snack, but it wasn't gluten-free and grain-free and sugar-free and things like that. And it's just like, I'm so sorry about that. Um, we got... So once upon a time, somebody got mad because we gave our kids candy uh, in Super Church. And so uh, if you don't know anything about, like, church, like, church is like the one place you kids, your kids should get candy, right? And if you're anti-candy, I'm sorry. I, I, forgive me for it. Uh, but no lie, this, this was early, early on in, in our early days that, that somebody got upset because we gave the kids candy. And I said, well, well, let's get a bag of, like, those cuties that they have at the, the store, and we'll give kids little tangerines when they come to church, Right? There was a mass revolt of children in our super church <laughs> when we started handing out tangerines instead of candies. Like, it was not good at all. <laughs> but sometimes people get bent out of shape over the smallest things. And it doesn't come down to it, it's a doctrinal issue. It doesn't come down to it's a Bible issue. It comes down to a, you didn't do what I wanted you to do. And friends, we cannot have that attitude in church. Uh, I, I try, we have probably the longest handshaking time of any church in America. I would probably put that up, uh, dollars to donuts, I would say. Uh, probably the longest ever. You know why? Because I like talking to every single one of you. And I can't do it every single Sunday. I, I can't catch every single person every single Sunday. I wish I could, but I can't. But I try my hardest, right? And there's probably been times that I've come over in your section, wherever you're standing, I've shaken everybody's hand around you except for you. Please know that's not personal. And I, I just got caught up and I didn't see it. Would you, would you, before you leave, just stop by and say hey to me because I can't touch everybody. I wish I could and say hey. But, but I love you and I promise you it's not personal, okay? But we've had people that have left our church because I came to their section and did not shake their hand. And I thought to myself, I'm sorry. I went back and apologized. Hey, it wasn't personal. Would you forgive me? I'll forgive you, but I'm never coming back to church there. At the end of the day, we can't have an attitude towards like, like that towards Jesus' church. Let me help you with something. This church was not made for you. It was made for Jesus and his glory. 
And it's our job to come here to give Jesus glory. Now it's here, we'll see uh, next week, we're gonna take a look at how the church is here for our maturity. It's here to help us grow. It's here to help us be better Christians. But at the end of the day, if you come to church for what you can get out of it, then you are a consumer. I wanna encourage you to come to church as an investor. What can I put into this? As opposed to what can I get out of it? I'm telling you this, if you take and give, it'll be one of the most rewarding experiences of your entire life. And church will be a place where you can grow and be closer to Jesus than you've ever been in your entire life. But selfishness will kill that. But you know, love brings healing. That's why verse number two says, with all lowliness and meekness, humility, with long suffering, being incredibly patient, forbearing one another in love. Let me just pull over here for a second and say in light of this verse here, if I or any other person in this church ever does anything wrong against you, to the point where you would say, I can no longer attend church there. Would you just do me a favor and come see me personally and let me know? Shoot me an email, shoot me a text message, see me eyeball to eyeball, and let's just talk about that because division has no place in Jesus's church. And if I've done something wrong, I wanna make it right. If I have offended you in any way, I wanna apologize for that. But at the end of the day, there must be unity in Jesus's church and love brings healing. First Peter 4, 8 says, and above all things, fervent charity among yourselves for charity or love shall cover the multitude of sins. The whole goal of love is that it would cover up all the wrongdoing that we have in our life. Not in a shady way in the fact that somebody did something wrong and we wanna hide that they've done something wrong. It's just that your sin is no longer on display because the love of Jesus covers that. This is not a church where we make a big deal about where you came from or what sin that you were involved in. I've been in churches before where uh, people wore their past sin almost as a, a badge of pride. Oh, this guy over here used to be in a gang. Oh, this guy over here used to be this or that. This guy over here uh, used to be one of the roughest guys you've ever known. This girl over here, she used to be uh, involved in drugs and all this other stuff. And we wore, they wore their sin as a badge of pride. That's not a good thing because love covers sin. You're a child of Jesus. That's all I know about you. I don't care about your past. I don't care what you were involved in. You know, the devil wants to bring up your past sin. But you know what? Love wants to cover that and say, hey, we don't need to talk about that. Jesus is taking care of that already. Love covers sin. Love also is forbearing. Take a look at verse number uh, two again. Forbearing one another in love. The word forbearing is not a word that we use uh, that much in our vocabulary today, but it's a solid, solid word for explaining how good God is. Uh, my wife and I, when we first got married, uh, we didn't uh, do any type of premarital counseling. Uh, we didn't sit down with a pastor and talk through things like we should have, like every couple that's planning on getting married should do with premarital counseling. Uh, we didn't sit down and talk about our finances. We didn't put together a, a family budget. We just knew, I love you, you love me. We should totally get hitched. <laughs> and, we, and we did, like a month and a half later, we got hitched. Uh, and uh, we probably uh, one of the most gracious times that I can think of that God has been to me uh, in that, in the fact that we didn't know what we're doing, but God made it all okay. We sat down and we began doing our finances together and stuff like that. And uh, we began to get mails and things in the, in the mail. And she said, oh, I forgot all about this. And I said, what is this? And she said, it's my student loans from college. And I said, you got student loans? She said, I got student loans. I was like, great. Didn't sign up for that one, right? And so we began to read through all the paperwork that they sent us about our student loans and things like that. And we found out that we could apply for a forbearance. And this forbearance says, you don't have to make any payments. We're gonna stop what you should be paying. 
and give you some time to get your act together. No interest, no penalties, no nothing. It's going to be forbearance. For, it's going to be a forbearance, and basically we're stopping what you owe. God, in his love towards you, has stopped what you owe. He's put your account on pause because he loves you. You're not getting what you deserve yet because let me just tell you this. We have all sinned against God for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I've broken God's law. You've broken God's law. Every single one of us are sinners. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. And the Bible says that your sin has a price associated with that. There's consequences for your sin. You don't get to just sin all you want and get away with it. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. You have earned death. Now, we're all gonna die one day, and you say, well, that's not the big deal. We're all gonna die. The death that it's speaking of in the Bible is not just a physical death. It's a spiritual death. The wages of your sin is an eternal death separated from God forever in a place called hell that burns with real fire for all of eternity. That is what you have earned because of your sin. That's what I have earned because of my sin. And barring any outside intervention, you and I, because of our sin, will die and be separated from God forever in hell. That's what we deserve. But God is loving. God is merciful. He is forbearing. He's not gonna give you what you deserve today. He's holding off for a minute. And he did something for you so that you actually don't have to pay what you owe. He sent his son Jesus to die in your place, and Jesus paid the price for you. You see, the Bible says God commendeth or demonstrates his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus came and died for sinners so that we don't have to go to hell when we die, so that we don't have to be separated from God forever. God has stopped your account on what you owe him, and he's given you a minute to get your stuff together. Are you with me this morning? He's forbearing but he will not be forbearing forever. When you die, you are responsible for your own sin unless somebody pays for you. Now, I can't pay for your sin. I have my own sin that I have to pay for. This church cannot pay for your sin. No other institution can pay for your sin. You cannot be baptized to wash away your sins. The only person that can pay for your sins, his name is Jesus. Jesus came. He lived a perfectly sinless life. He died on the cross to pay for my sins and yours so that we don't have to go to hell, so we don't have to be separated from God, but it requires you to make a decision. You've got to make the call. I can't make it for you. You must choose to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You must recognize I've sinned against the holy God. I deserve to go to hell, but I'm putting my faith in Jesus and all he has done for me to be saved. When I was a nine-year-old boy, I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior. I knelt in my bedroom and I prayed a prayer that goes something like this. God, I know that I'm a sinner and I realize I deserve to go to hell. But I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins and save me today. And the Bible says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so I got saved as a nine-year-old boy. It's also referred to in the Bible as being born again. And this is really important because Jesus says, no man shall enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. You know for sure that you're saved or born again because there's coming a day when God is no longer forbearing and you're gonna have to pay what you owe. In, in our life, there was a time where the student loans weren't forbeared anymore. I don't even know if it's the word forbeared. It, it doesn't sound right. But uh, there's no longer forbearance on that student loan. We had to pay for it. 
There's coming a point where you've got to pay for your sin or somebody else has to pay for you. Jesus has paid the price if you'll put your faith and trust in him. That's what love does. Love is forbearing. How do we apply that to our situation? How do we apply that to our church? When somebody does you wrong, just be forbearing and don't get, give them what is coming to them. Just be gracious. Love covers a multitude of sin. Love allows some grace. Love allows someone to do you wrong and you say, hey, they're probably just having a rough day. I'm gonna give them a little bit of grace. There's been folks who have went to pick up their kids before and says, oh, you know, the, the lady at the counter wasn't very nice to me. If you were in a room for two hours with screaming children for two hours straight, 15 kids that do not belong to you that are screaming at the top of their lungs, just be, give a little bit of grace. We'll talk to our nursery workers and ask them to smile a little bit more. Sorry, you know. But I think we should be forbearing. And look, if you've got kids in children's ministry, thank your children's ministry workers. They're phenomenal. And they don't just do it because they have to. They're not just trying to keep your kids alive. They love your kids and want to actually teach them the Bible. That's huge, huge. But they do it because of love. Secondly, we see in this passage here this morning that we should desire and seek after unity. If you look at verse number three here, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We should endeavor... To keep unity. You know what that means? That means unity is going to be work. It means it's something we're going to have to work towards. Notice this verse doesn't say, since there's automatically going to be unity, since there will always be peace. It doesn't say that. It says work towards it. You're going to have to put in the effort to keeping unity in the church. It's interesting to know that peace is not the product of who we are or, who, or our circumstances. Peace is a work of the Holy Spirit. See, peace comes from the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse number 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. Long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. That's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit's working in me, and the Holy Spirit's working in you, then we'll have unity. Then we'll have peace. Then we'll be on the same page together. But this requires us to walk in the Spirit. We must walk in the Spirit. This doesn't come naturally. This requires us to put our flesh to death and choose to allow God to work through us. When I get angry, I have to say, I'm not going to allow my anger to overtake me. And I ask God to replace my feelings of anger with feelings of peace. And you know what? It's amazing how God does that. If you're a child of God, if you've been saved, if you've been born again, inside of you lives the Holy Spirit inside of you and you have access to the greatest peace that you've ever known in your entire life that comes from Jesus. And the Holy Spirit will bring peace to his church when we walk in unity together. Again, if we've got drama and fighting and backbiting and people that are mad at each other, and people that don't get along with other people and things like that, there's not gonna be, be unity there because we're not walking in the spirit. We're walking in our flesh. We're angry, we're frustrated, we're bitter. And God doesn't bless that. When issues come up, we must handle issues biblically. I would be a liar if I said in almost five years, we've never had any problems at who we call a Baptist church. It's just been uh, just rainbows and unicorns and ponies and cupcakes. It's just been amazing here. Hey, well, look, we've had, we've had drama, but you know what we do? We squash it because that's what the Bible says to do. Matthew 18 says this. If you've got a problem with another person, the first thing you do is go talk to that person. It's it. It's very, very simple. Biblical conflict resolution is very simple. If I got a problem with Bob, the only person I'm going to talk to about it is Bob. 
Hey, Bob, you said this the other day, and I'm super bent on a shave about that. The problem comes when I got a problem with Bob, and I go to Tom to talk about it. Tom, Bob said this the other day, I'm super bent. No way, he said the same thing to me the week before. Oh, I can't believe that. Can you believe Bob? What a scumbag, that guy. You know, my wife said that she was talking to his wife the other day. I wonder if my wife knows anything about how much of a scumbag this guy is. And then we start a chain that's known as gossip. And gossip destroys churches. It splits churches. It creates drama and infighting and cliques and wars within the own body. And it's a tool of Satan to bring about disunity in a church. That's why there is zero tolerance for gossip. None, zero, zip, zilch, nada, not gonna happen you got a problem with bob the only person in the world you talk to about it is bob and the bible says in matthew chapter 18 if you're taking notes you should write out to this side there matthew 18 because that's what we sometimes refer to as church discipline or conflict resolution in the church if i got a problem with bob and i go talk about it with bob bob you said this and i was really upset about it bob tells me to buzz off mind my own business grow some thicker skin and he just doesn't want to make it right i don't feel right about it the Bible says I should grab a couple of other folks to go with me to talk to Bob about that so we can get it sorted out together. That's what biblical conflict resolution looks like. It says if you can't get, get that squared away, take it and tell it to the entire church so that they can know that Bob has something wrong in his life that he doesn't want to make right. Thankfully, in five years, we've never had to get to that level of where we've had to, to go to the entire church and tell sin to a church. But I'm telling you this, it's gotten close sometimes. But you know what? 95% of the conflict in our church gets re resolved by one person going to another person and settled. Over and done with. That's the biblical model. You know why? Because if I'm walking with Jesus and you're walking with Jesus and we got a problem when we come together, I will be brokenhearted over my sin. I will be devastated that you're upset with me. Again, in five years, I've had a dozen or more people that have been upset with me. And every single time they say, Pastor, you said this, and I was really upset about it. It hurts me to my core, and I want to apologize and make it right. Why? Because I'm walking in the Spirit. <laughs> There's been a couple of times where somebody confronted me when I was in the flesh. And they said, Pastor, you did this. And I said, grow some thicker skin. Grow up. Be mature, you know. And have I always handled it that way? No, but I want to. I want to mature. I want to grow. Because that's where unity is found. Unity flows, uh, I'm sorry, next, uh, we must love and prefer one another. Again, this comes down to putting other people in front of myself. This is a hard thing to do, but it's the biblical thing to do. The Bible says that we're to be preferring one another in the spirit of love. You know what this means? I'm gonna put you first. It's not about me and what I want. It's not about uh, where I like to sit in church. It's not about where I like to, uh, to hang out with people. It's not about anything like that. It's about you. And it's funny when folks come and want to be members of who we call a Baptist church, uh, we begin to talk about what it means to be a church member. And being a church member at who we call a Baptist church doesn't mean you get these extra perks. You know, like you go to the gym, there's like the, uh, the entry level, and then there's like the gold level membership you can get at the gym, right? Which is like access to the sauna and the spa and stuff like that. But if you're just a lowly guy, church membership is not like that. I wish we had a church member's spa. I wish we had a sauna just for church members. I wish there was a swimming pool on top just for, that would be cool, right? But that's not the case. Here's what you get by being a church member. We're gonna put you to work serving in ministry. <laughs> you get to watch kids. 
Uh, you get to serve kids. You get to usher. You get to set up chairs. You get to tear down chairs. You get to help people park their cars on a Sunday morning. By being a member of who we call a Baptist church, you also don't get preferred parking. You don't get a little placard that you get to put on your car that you park up front. No, you get to park as far as humanly possible away from our church. You know why? Because we want to leave all the close parking for our guests that come for the first time. You know why? Because it's no longer about us and what we can get. It's about what we can give to other people. Hey, it's not about I'm going to roll in 15 minutes after the service starts. It's about I want to get here 15 minutes before it starts so I can meet new people, so I can talk to people that I've never talked to before, so that I can have families that come in with kids that are a little bit nervous about going into a class. I can help them transition a little bit easier, but that doesn't happen if I'm rolling in at 20 minutes after because I didn't really like that song we sang last week. Are you with me? That's what unity looks like for us. It's about other people. It's not about me. It's not about what I can get from it. It's about what I can give towards it. Unity flows from our mission and our priority. We're unified by a singular mission. This is what we're all about. Our mission is the Great Commission. Jesus Christ, before he ascended to heaven, gave us one final instruction. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even into the end of the world. We call that the Great Commission. It's found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts chapter one. Five times in scripture records Jesus' final commandments to us. That is our mission. That is what drives us. Now, will we do other things in our community to help it? No doubt about it. We like to pull weeds around here. We like to paint over graffiti. Uh, we like to have a neighborhood watch going on here that we've got eyes on, making sure that nobody's doing anything shady around here. Nobody ever does anything shady in the city of Honolulu, do they? Never. No shady people here at all. But you know what we're trying to do? Make our community better. Is that our mission? Nope. Hey, there's plenty of folks that can paint over graffiti. There's plenty of people that can pull weeds. There's plenty of people that can call the cops when people are being shady and stuff like that. But our mission is to tell people about Jesus. Our mission is to get the gospel to the people who need it most, to tell people that death about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the sins of mankind. That's what we do. That's our bread and butter. Will we do other auxiliary things? For sure, but let's not get off of the mission of Jesus' church, and that's the Great Commission. Our priority is the glory of God. What unifies us together, what keeps us all on the same page is that we have a common mission and a common goal. Our goal is that God would get glory from our lives, that my home would bring glory to God, that my workplace would bring glory to God, that my street would bring glory to God, that Jesus' church here that's assembled as who we call a Baptist church would give God glory. That's our focus of what we're trying to get accomplished here. And if we're all on the same page together, we can move forward together. The problem that we have is when people want a different mission. There's been folks who've, who've come to who we call it before who say, hey, we really feel a burden to, to reach the homeless and we feel like it should be the church's mission to, to give sandwiches to homeless people. I'm all for giving sandwiches to homeless people. Please don't misunderstand, but that's not the mission of our church. And you and I don't get to redefine what the mission is because the Bible has already clearly defined what it is. It's to reach people with the gospel, tell people about Jesus. Nobody else on planet earth is doing that other than the church. That's our job. We can't get off mission. We can't get off focus of what we're supposed to do. And that brings unity to the church because we're all here because Jesus saves. Final thought here and we're done. Unity flows from a commitment to sound doctrine. If we're all on the pa same page together doctrinally, and doctrine is a, is a group of beliefs derived from biblical truth. 
If we're all on the same page together doctrinally, that draws us together. Uh, that's why we are who we call a Baptist church. A Baptist have, the Baptist name historically has meant Bible-believing Christian. Simple as that. We just do what the Bible says, and we hold to the Bible alone for everything that we do. We don't have any additional traditions that we have to follow. We don't have any additional people that we look up to or, or, uh, or lift up in any way. It's just the Bible and Jesus. Simple as that. But doctrine is the glue that holds our church together. As Paul goes through a list here, starting in verse number four, about the unity of the church. He says, first of all, that there's one body. That one body is the church, the body of Christ. It's the church that Jesus started, that you and I get to be a part of. One body together. Now, there's been times before where we've had had two worship services because we were in a smaller auditorium space and there might be a day uh, that God grows our church to the point where we have to have two services. We will still be one body together because we are the church that Jesus started. This, this body is also made up of believers worldwide. Every other person who names the name of Christ, who calls himself a Christian, is part of the body of Christ, the family of God. Uh, worldwide, we're part of something greater than ourselves. Next. Paul says that we have one spirit. There's only one spirit, and it is the Holy Spirit. If you're a child of God, the Spirit of God lives inside of you. There's been a time in your life where you put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Savior. Inside you resides the Holy Spirit, and that is one spirit. One hope of our calling, he says. The hope of our calling is the fact that we've been adopted into God's family Again, if you're a child of God, you're part of the family of God. That calling that you have is a calling to sonship, a calling to daughtership, a calling to be a part of a family. And that automatically puts you in a body of other believers throughout every single nation and every single tribe worldwide. Next, one Lord. The word Lord means master. Who's our Lord? Our Lord is Jesus Christ. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is our Savior. And we only have one Lord and his name is Jesus. We have one faith. What is that? Our faith is in the word of God. The Bible is our guidebook for everything. Our faith is in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for the sins of mankind. I'm not trusting in my religion. I'm not trusting in my church. I'm not trusting in what my grandparents have done for me. I'm not trusting in some word of prophecy that someone spoke upon me. I'm trusting in the word of God and that Jesus Christ has paid my debt on the cross once and forever. That is my faith. And let me tell you this, folks. That is the only faith. That's why there is one faith that says here. Anything else? is a false faith. I'm just going to be, be straight with you guys this morning. If you're not trusting in Jesus Christ and what he has done on the cross for you, and you're not trusting in the word of God, you have a false faith. And again, there have been people who have left our church because I said that uh, anything that doesn't adhere to the scripture is a false religion. I, I hate that you had to leave, but it's probably best that you leave because we'll never be on the same page together. We'll never be unified. Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. There is no other way. That is our one faith that we have. Paul says one baptism. This is the baptism of the believer in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Last week we had 10 people baptized. It was an incredible day. And you know what? They were baptized the same way that the apostles were baptized. They went into the water and they pictured the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christians in the first century, you know how they were baptized? Baptized in water by immersion, picturing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here believers, 2,000 years later, walked out to Alamoana Beach Park and were baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit because there is only one baptism. 
If you're a child of God and there's been a time where you've been baptized and you see other people get baptized, it probably reminds you the day that you got baptized and where you were and what was going through your mind and what you had going on. That's why baptism is the thing that draws us together because there's only one baptism, one God and one Father. Verse number six, who is above all and through all and in you all. What holds us together? The fact that we're unified by God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, our faith in God. Final thoughts before we leave here today. First of all, let me ask you this question. Are you part of the body of Christ? Do you know for sure that you're saved? You get into the body of Christ by being saved, by being born again, by trusting Christ as your Savior. Do you know for sure that you're saved? Friend, don't leave here today if you are not 100% sure that heaven is your home when you die. You must put your faith in Jesus Christ. But let me ask you a second follow-up question. Are you a productive member of the body of Christ? Are you getting done what needs to get done? Are you living for Jesus every day? Are you living towards the glory of God? Are you a part of his church as a productive member? Are you doing your part? Next, are you committed to the mission of the body of Christ? If our job is to go and tell people about Jesus, are you doing that on a regular basis? Inside your bulletin, you'll find out one of our invitation cards that we have. I don't know which one you have in your card this week. We have two different ones. One has a girl hiking and another one has the water on it. It doesn't really matter which one you have. But we put those in your bulletin every week because it's a challenge to you to get one invitation out in the next seven days, just one. Now, some of you probably take those and stick them on your dash or car or something like that. Don't do that. Get it in somebody else's hands. That's not for you. You already know what time service starts, okay? Some of you. Um, that's there for you to pass on to someone else. You know why? Because that's our mission. That's what we do. This is our bread and butter. On the way out, you'll see on the right-hand side, every single door that we have, when you leave on the right-hand side, there's more, a stack of invitations. Take as many as you want, as long as you get them out. Hey, take a plate of cookies and take them to a neighbor. Uh, sometimes I'll go to Leonard's. I'll get a half dozen malasadas and take them to our neighbors and put an invitation on the top of it. Do what you can to get the message out. That's all I'm asking you to do. Be faithful with the message. Finally, are you living daily for the glory of God? This is how you're living your life. Does your life talk about how good God is or does your life talk about how great you are? Does your life draw people to you or does your life point people to Jesus? Is it all about you or is it all about Jesus? Those are some heavy questions, but that's what Paul's challenged us to do. Can you imagine what would happen if every single person in this room this week for the next seven days lived for Jesus like they've never lived for him before? You know what that would do for our community? You know what that would do for our church family? You know what that would do for the cause of Christ in our city? But what if we went beyond seven days and for the next month, we all decided to live every single day for the glory of God? And every single day after that, for the next month and the next month and the next month, that's the idea of what the church is about. It's the long haul. It's us together as a team doing the work of the ministry that Jesus has called us to do, making a difference in our city together, unified, on the same page. If you're a child of God, that's your job. If you're here today and you don't know for sure that heaven's your home, please see me before you leave today. Do not leave without knowing for sure that your sins are forgiven. Let's pray.